The Gist is sponsored by HBO and the documentary series The Jinx, The Life and Deaths of Robert Durst. Four decades, three murders, and one very rich man who refused to speak until now. The Jinx airs Sunday at 8, only on HBO. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Friday, March 13th, 2015. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pasca. I like newspapers, you know that. I like newspaper names. The Modesto Bee, the Akron Blade, the Sun Times. It's so optimistic. Sunny times ahead, even when it's four degrees in Chicago. The Commercial Appeal. Does it have commercial appeal? I don't know. Circulation's been falling. The Post Standard. Is this some sort of acknowledgement? Yeah, we used to really care a lot. Now we're kind of post standards. My old favorite, the Youngstown Vindicator. My new favorite. I got a new one. This covers the news out of Chechnya, South Ossetia, Azerbaijan. And they were in the news for forwarding a story that very much indicated that the guy that Putin is fingering for the killing of Boris Nemtsov might be a patsy, could be a patsy. These guys were found under the Seeking Arrangements section of Craigslist under the single white autocrat seeks patsy list. All right, here's the name of the site. I don't know if it's a paper. I think it's mainly a news website. It's called The Caucasian Knot. Okay, here's what the knot is not. The Caucasian Knot. I thought first this might be like when a minority businessman goes in for a loan and then he gets turned down by the bank and all his friends are like, man, what were you thinking? Of course they didn't give you the loan. That's called the Caucasian Knot. You got the Caucasian Knot. But that's not the knot we're talking about. We're talking about K-N-O-T. It's not like the Irish goodbye. It's not like Turkish revenge. It's not a euphemism. It's a new site that covers the area of the world around the Caucasus Mountains, making the point, I guess, that all these areas are intertwined. But I will cite it frequently from now on. I will look for opportunities to book the Slate softball team against the Caucasian Knot. And I will try to purchase some Caucasian Knot branded shirts and hats, wear them to parties where everyone knows that I'm making an ironic statement. On the show today, it is an Antan Twig, our word for a three-week period that ends with the awarding of Lobstars. Our old friend and sporkful host Dan Pashman is here to help us literally clean up our fridge. But first, we seek a law professor who is willing to say this horrible, ill-conceived, possibly disastrous law happens to be constitutional. Last week, the Supreme Court heard arguments in King v. Burwell, the case that could undo Obamacare, the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act. This case is a little different from the 2012 case that could have also undone Obamacare, but it can undo Obamacare. So there are a couple of arguments to be had. One is, should Obamacare be undone? The other argument is, is Obamacare unconstitutional? If we're specifically about King v. Burwell, it's not a constitutional challenge. So we could ask, does this case have merit? Now, I'll tell you a little bit about how I like to get guests. Well, always I like to book people who are smart and knowledgeable and interesting, but I like to book someone who's unexpected, right? Someone who you wouldn't necessarily expect to be saying or having the opinion that he or she has, like the Orthodox Jewish guy who thinks Netanyahu goes too far, or the housing rights activist who thinks that rent control 
is bad is a bad thing. So that's sort of guest I like. Sometimes it's just because their personal story is interesting. But there's this element where if someone is arguing against self-interest, it gives them extra credibility or it makes them seem or maybe indicates that they actually are being intellectually honest. Funny thing with the lawyers who talk about Obamacare. All of the legal minds who think that King versus Burwell is a good, solid case, all of them, as far as I could tell, hate Obamacare, think it's a bad law, think it's bad policy. That doesn't necessarily mean they think this is a good case, and yet they all seem to fall that way. On the other side of it, all the opponents of King versus Burwell who think it's ridiculous or illegitimate, who think it's a terrible legal challenge, so far, everyone I've found seems to think that Obamacare is a good law with one exception. Well, let's just say at least he's close to an exception. Harvard Law professor Charles Freed, who was Solicitor General during the Reagan administration, says he's not sure that Obamacare is a good law, but he is quite sure that it's constitutional. He said so before Congress in 2012. And he thinks that King versus Burwell has even less merits than that lawsuit. I asked Professor Free to explain why it's so rare to find legal thinkers who say, while I disagree with the law, that doesn't mean it's unconstitutional. I would say that it depends on your view of human nature. If you have uh, one point of view, you would find it comical. Mm -hmm. If you have another point of view, you would find it tragic. But... It's more dramatic than that. When, at the time of the first Supreme Court challenge on the subject of the constitutionality of the mandate, I think it's very clear that most constitutional scholars, the overwhelming majority of constitutional scholars, left, right, and center, thought whether they liked the act or didn't like it, thought that the Commerce Clause challenge to the mandate was uh, somewhere short of uh, nonsense. Now, at this point, I want to explain a weird aspect of how the first Supreme Court challenge to Obamacare went down. The law was allowed. The law was allowed to go forward. But the majority of the justices still found that it wasn't constitutional. Obamacare wasn't constitutional under the Commerce Clause of the Constitution. But they said it would be allowed under the Tax Clause. So for most non-legal thinkers, right, for regular people, here's how they process that. Okay, gets to stay a law. But for legal thinkers, the distinction was actually, according to Charles Freed, another source of hypocritical justification after the fact. And surprise, surprise, uh, it lined up perfectly with political predilections. <laughs> well, is it a surprise? Has this trend increased since you've been a professor, since you've been a constitutional scholar? Yes. Yes. And to what do you attribute that? Well, it's, uh, I attribute it to the totally deplorable politicization of everything. But if you look at the, how the case was decided, the, uh, the case that was brought about the constitutionality of the law, not, not the current case, King versus Burwell, 
It took a surprise move by John Roberts, acting out of character and perhaps against his own ideology, to save the law. Now, does that indicate that the justices on the Supreme Court weren't behaving as proper constitutional scholars if four of them bought into the arguments? I was surprised that John Roberts voted as he did. Chief Justice Roberts, when he went had his, his confirmation hearing, said, I have no agenda. I'm just an umpire. I call balls and strikes. Right. Uh, well, uh, I wrote about this right afterwards, and I said, well, in this case, the Chief Justice called a ball a strike, a strike a ball, but the batter got the base anyway. It was it was a one one count either way I guess you would say yeah yeah I had read a uh, Stephen Bainbridge who's a law professor wrote a blog post called biases that blind why did law professors misunderestimate the lawsuits against Obamacare and one of his arguments is just that constitutional law professors have a strong emotional stake in the outcome of the litigation over PPACA which is the act, sufficient to trigger motivated reasoning on the part of those opining. And he goes on to say that they basically wanted the law to pass. Do you think that that's a plausible argument? Yes, uh, for many, but I think that at the outset, before the sort of propaganda machine got going, the view that the Commerce Clause challenge was really pretty... uh, far out and implausible, was widely shared right across uh, the political spectrum. This only happened as time went on. Well, do you see the inconsistency on the other side? Have you seen cases where it's sort of remarkable that a law perhaps despised by liberals would be called unconstitutional by liberal scholars, even though it's questionable whether it's just a bad law as opposed to an unconstitutional law? Does that happen as often? It doesn't happen as often because I think going back to Lochner, people on the left tend not to think that, unless it's a First Amendment issue, uh, tend not to think that acts of Congress are unconstitutional. They have much more, um, much more disposed to see them as constitutional. You know, this goes back to Holmes in Lochner. The New York Bakeries case? That's right. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you one more thing, and this is the first time on my show I've ever cited this source, but it wasn't a terrible article on the website Breitbart, and he asks, should you, Charles Freed, still be quoted as a conservative? Now, the case was, it was a Nina Totenberg story, and she rounded up different people, and I guess she identified you because you were the Solicitor General during the Reagan administration as a conservative voice who thought whatever you thought about that case. I just wanted to ask you about that. How would you like to be identified in terms of ideology? Uh, I'd like not to be identified (laughs) in terms of ideology. That's like uh, saying whether somebody is good-looking or or not good-looking, or mm-hmm. something else. Uh, the subject of the, uh, of the epithet is the last person uh, to uh, apply it. Okay, follow-up question. Would you like to be identified as good-looking? I guess by this time I don't care. <laughs> After 79 years, 
You've made your peace with whatever people want to call you in terms of your pulchritude? Yeah, yeah, yeah. A, the die is cast. Charles Freed, professor of law at Harvard Law School. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. The Gist is sponsored by The Jinx, The Life and Deaths of Robert Durst. It's a new documentary series from HBO. Four decades, three murders, and one very rich man who refused to speak until now. It airs Sunday, last episode this Sunday at 8 on HBO. You can catch all the back episodes on HBO Go or HBO On Demand. Hey, there's news about the jinx. This is not just an interesting series or a compelling story. Listen to this. Because of revelations into this real-life story, New York Times is reporting as the jinx airs, inquiry into the death of Durst's friend is said to be reopened. Let me read from this story. An inquiry could be bolstered by new evidence shown publicly for the first time on the fifth episode of the HBO documentary. The evidence suggests that on the day Mr. Durst's friend Susan Berman is believed to have been killed, Mr. Durst knew about her death, knew the body was inside her Benedict Canyon home. They talk about how district attorneys in Los Angeles have recently reopened the investigation. They're possibly looking at a scene in episode five where, well, I don't want to give too much away. But this could lead to who knows what real life prosecution, even if it doesn't. This is a compelling story that the more you watch, the more people are talking about. It's made by Andrew Jarecki and Mark Smerling, who were the guys who made Capturing the Freedmans. Durst cooperated with Jarecki and he gives all these interviews. It's a real life murder mystery. And it's on Sunday at eight only on HBO. Joining me now is Dan Pashman, host of the popular podcast, The Sporkful, and with Dan and right behind him and providing that hum you hear is a refrigerator and an ice machine because we are in Slate's kitchen space and we will be talking about workplace kitchen etiquette. First of all, hey Dan, how you doing? Hey Mike, good to be here. So this is a pretty good kitchen for a workplace of our size. I would say we've outpunted our coverage in terms of, you know, quality kitchen for what you might expect of an office of, you know, 40 people. Yeah, I give Slate a lot of credit. You get two microwaves, which is really nice when someone's like heating up a frozen dish. That's crucial. That really, I'm sure, increases productivity. You got a toaster oven, which a toaster oven makes a big difference. It's so much better than a pop-up toaster. I know, because I used to work here myself, that Slate provides milk for the coffee and also for your breakfast cereal. Just like the breakfast club, will milk be provided? The answer is yes. <laughs> well, I'll also say we do have an official pretty big industrial coffee machine. And I was once doing the math on my Slate employment. And you know, I, I came from NPR and I'm like, oh, I wonder if the healthcare is as good, it's not. I wonder if the benefits are good, it's not. But free coffee, if you do the math on it, it saves me about $600 a year. I cannot wait to tell my wife that because I've actually started bringing home the WNYC coffee <laughs> in my travel mug and then the next morning I take it out of the fridge and drink that and like, I mean, that's, our, that's my nest egg right there. <laughs> that's pretty much it. It's like, look, we do not cover any previously existing conditions except for being tired because you're decaffeinated. <laughs> but, but it's a great point you raise about the second microwave and the second microwave might only be in use like 20 minutes a day, but those 20 minutes are 20 minutes where someone is not 
unbelievably upset at their fellow coworker. I mean, the amount of office goodwill that a second microwave engenders is hard to calculate. Although I can by pressing the nine button a few times and then there you go, I'm calculating. I just calculated it. Yeah, and, and I, I think that it's actually like if you're ever on a job interview and you're trying to evaluate how good of an employer is this? How well do they take care of their employees? I think if you want a quick and dirty answer, yeah. you can look in the in the yeah. in the cafeteria, the, the the lunchroom, because when you see the kinds of amenities they provide, to me that is a, a signal about the big picture. You go to a workplace, they're gonna try to wow you with the foosball table. You're never gonna play foosball, you're gonna eat in that kitchen every day. That's right, and you're gonna be glad they have that second microwave. Okay, so Slate does give milk, and so that gets right to what we're going to talk about. Slate, like a cow, gives milk, but a lot of places don't. If there's number one thing that's stolen from communal fridges, it's a little milk for the coffee. Under the theory, oh, I'll replace it, oh, it's just a little. Everyone says it's just a little, then the guy who bought the milk doesn't have the milk. So I think this gets into you know, the ethics of what to take, what to steal from the communal fridge. That's exactly right. I mean, I, I was surprised in talking to Sporkful listeners for this series about how many people actually said there's, there's nothing wrong with taking food from the fridge to some extent. I had one guy who said anything you put in the fridge is fair game. Uh, any kind of condiment, any kind of beverage, you know, ketchup, salad dressing, milk for coffee is fair game as long as you, people are only taking a small amount. Was this guy like a communist or more a snake Pliskin escape from New York survivalist type? <laughs> I asked him almost this exact, exact question. I was like, I can't understand. Are you a libertarian who's sort of saying like every man for himself and we don't need big government telling us what to do. We'll work this out on our own. Or are you like kumbaya, like we all, community property, yeah. you know? Um, and he, he didn't like being put into either of those camps. But what was funny is that he said that he used to bring ketchup in and his ketchup got severely depleted one week. And his attitude is, it's okay if you're only taking a little bit. He says, look, don't take a ton and, and don't bank on it. Don't not bring dressing to work for your salad because you figure, oh, Stevenson always has his ranch. It's really only when you're in a pinch and you need it. But he says his ketchup was really, someone went to town and I said, but you work with, this guy works with a lot of people. I said, isn't it possible that everyone in your office followed your dictum all on the same week? And you ended up with no ketchup. And he said, yes, that's possible, and it's the cost of doing business, and that's why he withdrew from the system. Uh-huh. So now he's like... The, he's, he's, off, he's, he's, take, off, he's off the grid. He's off the grid. He's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's off the grid, and he is uh, living in, he's in a shed. Yeah. He's not participating in the packets. system. It's all vacuum-sealed packets. <laughs> All right, so the other thing about just taking a little of the time, I worked with a very dear, dear woman who clearly followed that rule, maybe not for herself, but you know, followed that rule with other people's foods. And all it meant is she would take two of my Diet Cokes a week. I remember the, uh, the Diet Coke years, Mike. You and I were working together at NPR then. And as I recall, there was sort of an unofficial, or maybe it was more official than I realized, system where you provided Diet Coke, but periodically other people were expected to show up with a case. Yeah, let me just say, there was never that system, and it was just that people would steal my Diet Coke. <laughs> oh, by the way, I owe you a case of Diet Coke. <laughs> now, I have a lot of gum, and my neighbor, Dina Temple-Raston. Dina Temple-Raston. NPR News. Was so good about taking a piece and then giving me back a pack. I loved her. But my other neighbor, Margo, was more of a Coke taker instead of a Coke maker. Margo Adler, NPR News. 
All right. So anything about our office fridge that you think we're we could we could optimize it it's pretty messy but then again a lot of people have a lot of stuff there just looking at it can you give us any advice it is very messy i think that it would be good if you were so there's one two three four shelves and they're all about equally spaced apart you have about um you know a, a foot to let's say 16 inches of height in each spot i would recommend moving one shelf so that you have one shelf that's the shorter shelf and one that's the much higher shelf. And that will sort of create a natural kind of stratification where all the small containers will hopefully end up on one shelf and all the big containers will end up on another shelf and then you won't have big containers hiding small containers. Also, I would think that if people got together, maybe if maybe if everyone had the, hey, let's all just share cream cheese when you share cream cheese, maybe there's something to be said for that because there are probably four cream cheeses in there. I think that what you're saying is probably the theoretical ideal. You know, there's one cream cheese and one milk and, and you know, three different kinds of dressing, et cetera, et cetera, that are always there and always stocked. And maybe everyone just puts into a kitty once a week, maybe to uh, avoid controversy, it's just automatically, you know, a dollar a week deducted from your paycheck. And all that money goes into a pot and that person is in charge of stocking. But then of course, one person's gonna say, well, you're taking my dollar a week and, and I only like, I can only drink almond milk. I don't, dr so now you gotta stock almond milk for that one person and it becomes, how many specialty items are you going to stock for which people, you know? There's a gluten-free kitty, there's a kosher kitty, right. and all of a sudden we're living on a cat farm. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, the one other thing I'll say about the slate fridge is there can be a, an advantage to a fridge that's so messy like this, which is that it's easier to hide prized morsels. I sometimes would go to Raffetto's, this amazing Italian market down the street from here, been there for 100 years. You get fresh pasta made that morning, bring it into slate while I was working for the day. I never had to worry about anyone taking that because it was like three layers deep. No one was ever going to find it. I will now tell you what my strategy, and I say this with hesitance. I hope maybe a lot of people at Slate don't listen to the gist. I will now give you my strategy for keeping everyone's hands off your stuff, for decommunalizing your things. And I say this because I'm in charge of Beer Friday and I bring the beer for the office, but sometimes I'll leave a, I usually refrigerate it Friday morning because I don't want to take up the whole the refrigerator for many days, but sometimes I'll leave a six pack in there and I find that people think it's theirs every once in a while, a beer will go. If I want to make sure that all six of my beers stay, I put it in a plastic bag. And anything put in a plastic bag just never gets pilfered. I have two theories as to why. People aren't bad, they just succumb to temptation. So seeing something, they think they're not the kind of person who would steal cream cheese, but when they see it, they're like, oh, it's cream cheese. And the second thing is, if it's in the bag, they don't even know it's there. Like people know not to look in a bag that's not there. So I think that that is an extra layer of protection that I offer to everyone in America, except my fellow Slate employees. <laughs> I have two responses to that. First, you're right that generally speaking, putting food in, op in an opaque container makes it people less likely to take it. Google found this out through research, so they offer tons of free food to their employees. So what they did is they wanted to encourage people to eat more healthy foods. They put all the junk food in opaque containers and all the healthy food in clear containers, and people started eating more healthy food. So you're, you're on the right track, but there are some people in the world who are just pure evil witnessed the, the story featured on the Sporkful in our parody of Serial, this woman suffered from months of food thievery. She was targeted in her workplace. And this food thief, so this woman, Heather, the victim, she had a slice of a sandwich taken, then another slice of a sandwich taken. She finally took a sandwich and put it into Tupperware and wrapped the Tupperware in duct tape. And the thief sliced through the duct tape. 
So there are bad people in the world, Mike. Unlike other shows that are based on the serialized mystery premise, is there an answer at the end of the Sporkful serial, or are we just going to listen the whole time and more questions than answers will be raised? I can promise you a payoff. There is a, uh, you do discover who the food thief is, and there is an epic confrontation when the victim chases the perpetrator into the women's room, brandishing a burrito and spork, and pounds on the door of the stall as the perpetrator hides inside. Dan Pashman is responsible for the Sporkful podcast distributed by WNYC. He's in the middle of a series on eating at the workplace, and you should check out his episode, which is a serial parody tribute about a very horrific food theft dating back about 14 years. Thank you, Dan. Thanks, Mike. And now the spiel, an antenna twig descends. Yes, it's an antenna twig. The word comes from, as you know, the Old English. It's actually a corruption of the Old English, which was the devil's literal job in the minds of the Old English, at least. So it's a corruption of the Old English word for 21. Antan twig, three weeks. It's 50% more than a fortnight, a quarter less than a month. First, let's start with some corrections. I checked my Civil War chess set. Jeb Stewart rode with a plume in his hat, daring in the saddle, did die in battle, the Battle of Yellow Tavern. If you ever go to Yellow Tavern, try the shepherd's pie. But he was not killed by his own troops, as I said. Killed by his own troops, Civil War guy, Stonewall Jackson, who died at Chancellorsville, which Yelp says has terrible shepherd's pie. Also, Ray Milland won a Best Acting Oscar for Lost Weekend, not Days of Wine and Roses. Sorry, I got that wrong. I was drunk. And there were others, so many others, but let's not dwell. I shan't dwell. That's my daily affirmation. I shan't dwell. Let's keep score and let's keep account of what I got right. No, I don't want to put it that way. What we've been tracking here on The Gist and how news and facts have advanced. Like, I've been talking a lot about Nicolas Maduro, the president of Venezuela. On the show, I mocked his jumpsuits and his economic policies, his ideas that the way to get the supermarkets to run better is to jail supermarket owners for the long lines. Well, since then, President Obama presumed just listener, has noticed he's imposed sanctions against seven high-ranking Venezuelan officials accused Mr. Maduro of human rights abuses. Good! But now the headlines say Maduro is using this as a rallying cry. Washington Times, Obama clash with Venezuelan leader backfires. Latin Americans unite against U.S. Backfires? How? Did this make the lines any shorter? doesn't matter. We don't care about the backfire. We care about trading fire with fire. And the gist was there. On this show, I also talked about letting Putin lose on his own. We don't have to go up against him or arm the people who he's going against. I mean, maybe we should, maybe he shouldn't. But I have said that it seems like he's making such terrible strategic choices. He's going to give the game away without the United States getting involved. I don't know. The facts will still emerge, but I just wanted to note that as something that we've been tracking as the news marches on. Now, here's a phenomenon. I like to be right. 
I think most people do. Maybe I like it more than others, but I understand what it means to be wrong. Sometimes I go on TV in a sports prognosticator context. I'll say, hey, who's going to win the NCAA tournament? And I'll pick a team, right? I'll say, oh, Wichita State. And maybe Wichita State will only make the final four. But that'll seem good. And I'll retweet that. It makes me feel good to get my predictions correct. So on this show, because it's inflected a little bit with opinion, you know, we, we... delve into the predictive if I don't make flat-out predictions. And one of these things was when I was talking about the guy who was arrested in North Carolina for killing three Muslim students, Craig Hicks. Now, at the time, there was this huge outcry on Twitter and social media. You got to call it a hate crime. And I went on the gist and I said to those saying, when do we call this a hate crime? I said, when it's shown that it was a hate crime. So I've been monitoring this story. Was it a hate crime? This is still really murky. Recently, the New York Times examined the incident under the headline, In Chapel Hill, suspects' rage went beyond a parking dispute. Aha! So here, they have unearthed Muslim bias. Oh no, they haven't. While that headline is technically true, his rage was much more free-floating. He wasn't a parking-only asshole. But they only lent one detail that even remotely connected his rage to anything anti-Muslim, a problem with religion was the subhead, and it said, there's no question Mr. Hicks had a problem with religion. His Facebook page was full of quotations and memes denigrating Christianity. On January 27th, he shared a graphic that may have made reference to Islam. People say there is nothing that can solve the Middle East problem. I say there is something, atheism. That's it. That was connecting him to anti-Muslim hate. Look, I have no dog in this fight. If he's anti-Muslim and they find out, I say report it. I say let's learn from it. But let's not jump to the conclusions before the facts are in. And I've been looking at these facts. I say they're still not in. One last thing that I've been talking about in the last three weeks that I wanted to check back in on. I said a few weeks ago that Bill O'Reilly lies a lot. Yeah, that's still true. He's a big liar. Okay, on to the Lobstar Awards. We have a runner-up and a winner. The runner-up who will serve as the Lobstar of the Antan Twig if the actual Lobstar cannot fulfill his duties of embodying elements of just listenership and interactivities. Runner-up is Richard Warwick, who wrote this. I enjoy the gist and listen to every episode. Right there, third of his way to Lobstar. I particularly appreciate its short length, Not because it's short per se, but because it packs so much into the time. It's like a normal podcast with the fluff removed. I'm liking this guy more and more. But you knew there was a but. I don't like the explicit language warning at the beginning of each episode. We get this from time to time. I'm sympathetic. I'm going to use words like asshole in the context of some guy in North Carolina who shoots people. And I know that some people will be turned off, but that is not what the letter writer is saying. He goes on to say, my complaint is that a podcast that's mostly about language should be explicit, but the warning is about swearing, which the podcast rarely contains. I don't know. Andrew, what do you think? Does this podcast rarely contain swearing? You did call one of our guests a fuckwad. Yeah, that's true. There, there is the fuckwad exception. That counts as like three podcasts worth of swearing. But if you stubbed your toe on the gist, <laughs> I think you'd say, ow. Good gosh almighty. I might say, oh, Mary, mother of God. All right. Mr. Warwick goes on to say, your explicit language isn't actually explicit. It's exactly the thing your podcast frequently exposes, mealy mouth language dancing around what it's really saying. Hope this helps. Keep up the good work. It's appreciated. It is You're the runner-up. Why didn't he win? Well, sometimes it's hard to go against a cute kid. Samuel Kluger, dear Mr. Pesca, 
I was listening to episode 200 of your podcast when you were talking about fifes and asking where the fife went and why people don't play the fife. As a matter of fact, I play the fife for the Colonial Williamsburg Fife and Drum Corps in Williamsburg, Virginia. This, you're listening now to Samuel playing the fife. He goes on to say, I'm your biggest fan under the age of 15 years. If you have any questions about the fife, don't hesitate to contact me. If you're in Williamsburg, go see a march. It'd be pretty amazing to have a celebrity see our march. It would, but I don't know when like Nicolas Cage or Bruce Boxleitner is going to be in Williamsburg. But when I'm there, I'll definitely watch it. And Sam, when I'm there in person, I will be there to award you the lobstar of the Antan Twig. That's it for today's show. The Gist is produced by Andrea Salenzi, longtime subscriber to the Doylestown PA Intelligencer, and its highbrow rival, the far snootier New Hope PA Intelligencist. Managing producer Joel Meyer always checks out the latest on the Fairbanks Daily News Minor. Even when there's big news out of Fairbanks, it's minor. Executive producer Andy Bowers lives in Southern California. When he wants to catch up on the news out of far northwest California, he reads the Del Norte Daily Triplicate. It has the dual distinction, this is true, not being printed in triplicate and not coming out daily. Our Facebook page. I like our Facebook page. I'd like to endorse it. It's facebook.com slash SlateGist. It combines all the negatives of Facebook with all the positives of SlateGist. But it's good. Has good videos, links to flags. The Gist is part of the Panoply Network. I'll give you a couple letters of Panoply, not in order. The A, the O, and the Y. There you go. Do what you can with Panoply. Go to itunes.com slash Panoply to check it out. Now, you know how when newspapers merge, they sometimes just smash the names together, like the Post Standard used to be the Post, and then there was the Standard, or the Star Tribune in Minneapolis. Once there was a Star, once there was a Tribune, now there's the Star Tribune. I just hope this happens to two Connecticut newspapers, the Greenwich Time and the New London Day, and I hope they relocate to Morris, Illinois, and they become the Morris Day and the Time. Thanks for listening. I'm David Plotz. This week on the Slate Political Gab Fest, was the Republican letter to Iran's leaders an act of political warfare? Look for us in the Slate store on iTunes or at slate.com slash podcasts.